Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I am joined by my co-host, Diana Clark, and today we're going to have our guest, Heidi Rachel Webb, talk to us a little bit about the divorce process, concilium process, and all things related to family dynamics as it applies to those people going through the process of divorce. So thank you so much, Heidi. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So just for some background for our audience, Heidi has been practicing for a long time. I'm not going to say how many years, but um, in front of the Massachusetts Federal District and Appeals Court. And she's had a long history in her family law firm and then as a solo practitioner representing children in court, representing families, working as a guardian ad litem. She's been trained as a mediator and a collaborative attorney. And I think it's, it's very interesting, you know, Heidi, when I looked at your background, it's not so surprising to see why you wound up in the place you are, given that you also have a master's degree in education from Harvard University, where you concentrated in counseling and consulting psychology. I have to imagine that those skill sets come into play a lot with the situations that you see. Um, So first, I thought it might be helpful to open up with just a broad question around what the difference is between a concilium process from and how that compares to a typical divorce. It's a great question, um, and hopefully one that we're flushing out more and more sort of as I've just developed a curriculum around this to teach lawyers the process, because really what's sort of evolved from English contract law was a system of a traditional divorce process that took place in a courtroom, much like any other civil contract case that didn't consider sort of the dynamics and interpersonal sort of relationships between people in a family. It's not a very well-suited sort of environment to restructure a family in that sort of way where all the psychological elements are really siloed from the legal elements and the financial elements. And it's just not a um, productive, in my way of thinking, or constructive way to think about where this family that had worked one way is now sort of evolving into another sort of family system what that will look like. And judges don't have time to really process and sort of consider that. That's frankly not their job. Um, And lawyers who are sort of set up in a traditional sort of mindset see the process as adversarial. Even if they're collaboratively minded, they're sort of looking at it from their individual client's perspective as opposed to sort of seeing it as a whole sort of family system that needs to sort of have an optimal outcome all around. So the concilium process really takes a 10,000-foot view of a family and says, you know, who are these people? You know, what's going on? So we ask a very different series of questions from the very beginning, so starting at the end and, and really saying, where does the family want to be 10 years from now, five, three, and work backwards instead of starting at the beginning, sort of filing a complaint and then just sort of seeing where everything ends up and starting discovery and other things that really need to be sort of disclosed and understood, but not that way necessarily. I love the idea that there must be a different way 
to, as you call, restructure a family. Are there particular patterns around, are you seeing more people want to engage in this concilium process that are younger, older? Are there other demographics that you find in this that seem to be attracting one group versus another? Um, I really don't think so. I think that it, it's a, a process that really suits everything that, well, more complicated processes are probably best suited by it because there are more moving parts. I mean, if, if a marriage is sort of a couple of young people who've been married a few years and don't have kids and don't have much property, I mean, it's, they're going to go on with their lives if it was more like, you know, a long date than a long marriage. Um, but a marriage that really involves, um, you know, children, young children, yet to get all the way through college, finances that are entwined, that possibly have multi-generational components. I mean, those sorts of families and complexities, no matter who you are in that family system, you'll be served well by the concilium process. I think there's, people often assume or ask, you know, if I represent women more often than, than men. And every once in a while, I sort of count up cases because I'm just curious about that. And it always turns out to be about 60-40, I'd say, sort of a slight bias toward women, but not what I'd consider a huge bias. And that may not even always be accurate. It just depends on, you know, right now I'm sort of representing or working with a lot of men. But I think it's not a pattern that I've really been able to distinguish about that. That makes total sense. If people start to go down the concilium process, is the final outcome typically divorce, or do you see other outcomes that come out of it? It's a great question. Um, I think, you know, this past, you know, pandemic time has been so stressful for so many families that I've been doing or working with a lot of people who are wanting to have postnuptial agreements, um, wanting to explore. And one of the beauties of the concilium process, frankly, is I just did this to someone this morning. It's you know, creating sort of almost like a branching narrative game. You might get divorced. You might not get divorced. You know, what does each path look like? And how do you take agency over that process as opposed to letting the process sort of take you over? But you have sort of the ability, if you think it through carefully with someone who really understands what the moving parts are and how you can best be helped, what you can do to sort of again, use that word restructure or re sort of think how you want your family to sort of to act. And I think instead of being reactive to a complaint that's served or something that you feel pressured to make an immediate decision about without, you know, you're seeing red and you can't really think um, because your sort of emotions are so hijacked at that point that you're not able to really um, act in your own or your family's best interest. Ideally, when would somebody come to see you? Ideally, it's when they're just thinking about this. And I think people people do, you know, when they know of this, really feel like it gives them a foundation of knowledge. Again, I was talking to a gentleman this morning who's, you know, feeling uh, like perhaps, you know, their marriage isn't going well and they're trying to do some, some marital counseling, but he's not feeling totally... Um, comfortable with where their marriage is at, but understanding sort of what does an asset division look like and what are, what are my responsibilities? What are my rights? What would child support look like or spousal support? 
you know, what do the numbers look like? Can you go through this and give me an idea of what that landscape is about? Because knowing that information, it may not change the decisions you make, but you go into it with a very different attitude and a very different, you know, sort of thought process. I mean, this gentleman, for instance, said, you know, fear was, you know, I'll be living in some hovel somewhere and my wife will be living with the kids in this house and, you know, I'm going to be sort of thrown out on the street. That's not what the court wants and there's no reason that should happen. I mean, assuming that the the finances are allow for some latitude in terms of um, a family's restructuring. Obviously, if there's not enough money to maintain two homes or even sometimes the home that people are either overextended in the home they're currently in, then that may have to be sold. But there's not a presumption that one party, you know, will have sort of the grander lifestyle. Interesting. Are there cases you simply just say, this is not an appropriate fit? I would say that I'm trying to think of cases or people who might just feel like if people have you know, enormous anger, are vindictive, are feeling like they just want to retaliate or, you know, they've been hurt and they just want to hurt somebody badly and they feel like they can do that through legal maneuvers or hiring someone who will sort of, you know, destroy somebody on the stand. I mean, that that kind of attitude wouldn't be a, a good fit. Um, I have seen through the pandemic, I mediate as well, and I have been mediating a lot um, of cases that were in litigation, but because the courts were so backed up, litigation counsel was saying to people, you're not going to get in before a judge and it will be remote when you do it, it for nine months or a year. You know, you could at least tr- try to mediate. And a lot of cases that I've mediated have been more complex than um I think cases where people would have said, we need a guardian ad litem, we need to go to court, there's a mental health issue or an addiction issue, and we can't deal with this any other way. Um, But when that other way is nine months or a year away, maybe there is another way. (laughs) You know, so it sort of causes people to rethink this process. What about, and you you touched on this a little bit in that answer, but, you know, what about cases with complex asset divisions or potentially complicated custody issues that might pop up or or generally speaking, I understand the vindictive piece, but couples that really are not getting along. I mean, is it mm-hmm. is this process mm-hmm. applicable to them as well? I do think it is because I think, you know, when you change one player in a dynamic, you change the whole dynamic. So even if one person comes in with a different sort of way of approaching a problem, I think it can work positively, which is, you know, just this morning, I was looking at an email sort of being passed between two people who are divorced but are, are re-sort of engaging about some custody issues. And the mother said to the father, you know, we can't co-parent. We have to parallel parent. I mean, that's her premise, right, mm-hmm. that it's impossible to, to co-parent with him. Okay, so he can either sort of take that narrative and say, she's someone who doesn't want to co-parent with me, so therefore we'll sort of put a bright line in the sand and we'll, the kids will just sort of go back and forth to two very different houses and we'll never communicate. You could do that. You could also, not that she's someone who necessarily wants to meet halfway, but you could just decide that I will communicate good things that happen in my house by email once a month, just so that you know what's going on here. Even if you don't want to write back to me, I want you to know what's going on here. You know, that will help my child maybe with the transitions to your house. So there are some 
some ways that you can sort of work creatively within uh, dynamics that are, are clearly not, not great. What about issues of really complicated asset business ownerships, stock ownerships, mm-hmm. family businesses? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, certainly done all of it. Um, and often work with, you know, financial people sort of on, on the team as well. I mean, there are times that, um, you know, there are really complicated payment schemes, share, you know, stock divisions, business, as you say, all the things you've mentioned, you know, business ownerships, trusts that are multi-generational that need to be looked at, whether they're revocable or irrevocable, and whether or not inheritance is going to play in, or, you know, how... Um, monies that have been funneled into a marriage, if there's been a lot of gifts um, that perhaps have come from, you know, one of the party's families, um, how that might factor in, in into a future sort of support order or, um, or, or an asset division. Um, you know, there are often cases where, um, you know, one of the, the, the wealth is sort of unequal. And if they didn't have a prenuptial agreement, which would really change, you know, anticipating the, the possibility, um, then you're sort of forced into looking at how that might look in the future. Um, and I think people have very different feelings about money. I mean, I was talking to a couple, uh, you know, earlier this week who um, it was a situation where there was a large imbalance, not only in their current sort of, well, in their family situation, but what they bring to the table in terms of one person sort of having grown up with a fear of never having enough money and somebody else sort of never having experienced that. A divorce feels really different when you've been for 20 years receiving, you know, huge gifts when that hasn't been your family, you know, prior to marriage, that hasn't been your experience. And then all of a sudden you're sort of, that's not going to be experienced again. I mean, that's sort of a not the money itself being what's so scary is the alienation from the family and like you, you sort of are walking into a different world or a world maybe you were happy that you had left and now you sort of feel like you're sort of being forced backwards. I remember, Heidi, as a young lawyer, I did a little bit of family law and it, I was not suited to it. I want to be perfectly <laughs> frank. And... My perception was, everybody said, I only want to do what's fair. He deserves nothing. She deserves nothing. (laughs) I mean, that was my sort of perception. How do you sort of breach that I only want what's fair, but it isn't really fair what their perception is? Yeah, you know, I guess fair is a really... Not great word, I think. Um, right. One of the analogies I, I use with people often is I talk about, you know, a couple of kids who are fighting over an orange and them both wanting it and, and parents sort of getting frustrated and saying, look, we're going to cut it down the middle and you'll each have half and, you know, stop the fighting. And then realizing after the fact, well, wait a second, actually, why did you want that orange? And then asking that question well, I actually wanted to make a cake and I wanted the rind and somebody else wanted juice from from the pulp. You know, if those questions aren't asked, I guess it's maybe a simplistic way to think about it, but at the very beginning, the consilium process considers those questions. Why do you want to stay in the house? Do you want to stay in the house? 
Is that an advantage or is that a burden? You know, there are lots of presumptions and assumptions people make sometimes that actually aren't what people want, but because they don't ask those questions, the person who's even receiving, quote unquote, the good settlement may not feel like it's that good. So I think, you know, that's one way of sort of addressing some of these issues. The other question in terms of children is that, you know, whenever people come in and say, I want, I want this to be fair, I want 50-50, I will inevitably say I may not be the right person for you to work with because I actually want to know, know your children. Tell me about them. Let me, let me learn, like, what are their interests? What do they do? What's their week like? This isn't actually about the parents. I mean, you guys are making a decision that's impacting your children in a huge way, and they have had no say in this. So imagine that, you know, you had to pack up your bags every Wednesday and switch houses. You know, would you like that? Maybe not. I mean, some kids don't have a problem with it. Other kids do. Maybe we can rethink this schedule over the course of not a week or a month, but a year. I mean, that way we can start creating a rhythm for your children that might suit them better. So there are lots of ways that I try to reframe things for people so that, you know, we're not talking about sort of fair, I guess, in a traditional sense, but sort of sensible and compassionate. I'm all for sensible and compassionate. Me too. And, I, you know, you mentioned mm. some ways. Are there other ways that children are involved in this process? Um, well, I mean, from the very, very first conversation I have with parents, you know, it's, it's interesting to me how often parents say, you know, we're going to talk to our kids tomorrow night, you know, or, um, you know, I don't know, vacation's coming up or, they, you know, they have this idea of when they're going to talk to their kids. What are you going to tell them? I don't know. I mean, we'll just we'll tell them that we're separating or whatever, and we'll, we'll hear what questions they have. It's like, mm, you know, maybe you want to think this through a little bit more. You know, again, who are your children? How old are they? Where are they at developmentally? Who do, in their life is their support system? What kind of stories do you want to tell them that give them something to hold on to about your family that's, that's sort of reassuring and enduring and also explains why this is happening? Um, and there are many sort of examples that I give for parents in terms of talking about, especially if it's a, you know, a situation where parents are like, well, you know, it's just not working for us. They're not sort of super contentious at that point, but they're just feeling like it's not serving them well. Okay, that may sound fine to you as an adult, but that doesn't necessarily sound to a child like it's a good reason. You know, how can you explain that in a way that makes sense to a child? Um and, you know, I sometimes talk about a story of two turtles that met on a beach and, you know, one was a land turtle and one was a sea turtle. And, you know, for certain kids, this is a, a good parable sort of to, to tell at a certain age, you know, they, they had, they got together and they had a lot of fun on the beach and they had babies and the babies were great. They could go back and forth between the land and the sea. But after a while, you know, the sea turtle really wanted to be in the sea and the land turtle really wanted to be on the land. I mean, something that gives them something, some scaffolding for a story that makes sense and is also sort of a way to understand their family that um, allows them to sort of love both people and sort of understand their place in the family system. That's lovely. I, you know, mm-hmm. I grew up as a child of divorce, and my experience does not mirror what you're talking about at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And that's really important information when I'm talking to people. Many, many of my clients are, you know, have had an experience as a child of divorce. And often at the same age as their, one of their children maybe is right now. So it's really important in those instances to, to at least examine what that was like and what part of that, you know, was really painful that you don't want to repeat, you know, so that you're conscious of it instead of repressing it as in, oh, here we go again, you know, and just repeating it instinctively because it's what you know. And frankly, people get really rotten advice the minute they start talking about separating. Don't leave the house. Mm -hmm. Go get the most Mm -hmm. aggressive Mm -hmm. lawyer. People get Mm -hmm. a lot of advice. Um, And I wonder how it would be if we had more availability of this process that says, you guys are talking about divorce. Go get some help about the kids. I Mm -hmm. like that approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's what we really, my partner and I wrote a book together a couple of years ago and um, are about to launch a remote program um, to teach lawyers this process and then, you know, financial people sort of from a different angle and therapists is sort of the, the goal. So hopefully, you know, it will become more mainstream, you know, is, is the goal um, so that this is a more, I think, um, I think it's a paradigm that's better um, and it's sort of ripe for the old paradigm, ripe for, um, you know, disruption. So that's uh, hopefully where we're headed. How do you think about dynamics related to affluence and money, you know, in, in this process? Are, you know, are, is the person who is not the primary breadwinner always at the, you know, always the one who's at a disadvantage during the concilium process? No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I think, I think that if you're well represented and you've sort of been able to think this through, then you shouldn't be um, disadvantaged. You should be sort of well prepared. But I think that knowing what you're entitled to and what your rights are and what your responsibilities are, you know, I think one of the other huge disservices that the traditional process does is when people are awarded spousal support, um, they often aren't given sort of financial advice about how long this money will last and how much of it will be able to be saved for retirement or what the retirement assets will look like in 15 years. You know, what's the illustration of that? What's the growth of that? You know, has anybody gone through those illustrations with you? I mean, that's part of what we do at the consulting process too, is we sort of pre-fade sort of financial outcomes so that people sort of can see what, you know, what income means and, you know, what savings can do. I'm curious, you know, as you're going through this process, Heidi, is there a group of people that you rely on, you know, other professional colleagues, whether they're people who are making referrals to you or people you're making referrals to, you know, is there, for any case, do you you, you sort of say, oh, I know we're we're on average going to need, you know, this grouping, some combination of this grouping of 10 types of professionals, and, and who are those folks that you're typically involved with? Yeah, there are many, many people that I work with, partly because I just don't, um, I've never sort of believed that there's a one size fits all, like that there's one best psychologist or there's one best financial person, because part of it is obviously people need to be really skilled at what they do, but then there's also just that soft sort of personality fit. 
And I think it just helps to have a lot of people that you know and work with and have seen sort of their work enough so that you can say to clients, you know, these are two or three people that I think are worth your interviewing or meeting um, so that you, you know, sort of can get that fit right. You know, that being said, when I put together collaborative teams from the beginning, when I work with a couple, um, which I don't know if we have time to really discuss this in great detail, but the but I basically am matching from the very beginning sort of lawyers and therapists who are on the team as a coach. And a lot of that is, you know, if, if person one doesn't work for person A, then, you know, I, wanna, I want person two for person B to work with the same two. You know, it's sort of like a mix and match sort of situation. Mm-hmm. But I'm sort of having people interview um, people and, uh, you know, lawyers particularly in a specific order so that we can, you know, get that right. Because I think like anything you want, you want a team to work well together. And just because people are highly skilled doesn't mean that they necessarily, you know, all play in the sandbox well together. Great point. Absolutely. Any other points you'd like to make today, Heidi? What, what became very clear to me is that I would imagine that at the end of this process and restructuring, as we're talking about, the potential for benign relationships among parents, among spouses, at the end of this is probably greater. Is that true? Absolutely true. I mean, I really do. I guess if, if there's one thing I could sort of gift to people, it would be a, a change in language. Because I do think that our language, you know, is reflective of our thoughts, obviously. And, you know, when we talk about you think of bankruptcy situations and you think of reorganization or liquidation. Those are two really different outcomes. And I think it's analogous with divorce being a word that's pretty harsh as opposed to restructuring. And when families, I many, many times, I can't even count the number of times families, people have come back to me and, and said years later, you know, our first conversation when you use that word restructuring, that totally changed the way I thought about this. Because it's an opportunity. You know, it's a way that you take control. And I think that's really, really important for people. You know, Heidi, as you're talking, I'm thinking of a colleague who I talked to recently who wrote a book, and I want to say the title is something like the beautiful divorce. And while it's a, it's somewhat of a mm-hmm. different concept, it's the same principles behind it. And especially, I mean, it's, for me, it's really encouraging to hear. I, I was fortunate to be in a family where, you know, my parents have remained married for many, many years, but I, you know, given the divorce rates in the country, I feel like I've always sort of said this process seems maddening to me that, you know, you're with somebody for a period of time and you are co-investing assets and your partners, both emotionally, financially, physically, you know, with children and other things. And and all of a sudden, you know, there's a day that comes and now you're complete adversaries, which is how it's portrayed in the media and how for many families Mm -hmm. it winds up being. Um, So hearing you and, and this other colleague talk about sort of alternative models as you're considering the ways in which you separate and maybe you don't separate, but maybe you get some further protections if that's really what the concern is legally, or maybe you, um, maybe you do separate, but in a way that is a a much calmer, much more, um, as Diana mentioned, a much more conciliatory way that preserves better dynamics. I just think it's really encouraging because I think 
we we may not see the rates go down, but perhaps the way in which divorce happens will be changed in our country for the better. Certainly, I think it's a it's a great goal. You know, I, look, I think we're all living a whole lot longer than you know years ago when people got divorced or people got to be fifty five or sixty, and if they weren't happy, they're were like, I can't live that much longer. Like they weren't thinking about you know divorcing in, in that way or thinking about a long life in the way that we do now, I think. And this concept of graying divorce, I don't know if you've heard it, but, you know, people, older people getting divorced, I think people now look at the length of time that they're married and the fact that, you know, people change and grow Mm -hmm. over the course of, you know, 10 years, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, of course they're going to change and grow. And some people, you know, will stay or even grow more aligned and other people don't. And, I don't know that that's a failure or just the truth. Um, and, you know, if that's so, why can't we honor sort of what was good about it and then sort of restructure in a way that gives people agency and, and leaves them feeling sort of more whole? Absolutely. Absolutely. In terms of language around divorce, I've actually recently been writing a blog called Lost in Translation, um, and it is on our website, and it explains sort of the derivation of terminology commonly used in divorce and suggests alternative language. So um, it's sort of the effort to sort of shift the thinking around this this whole sort of um, field. So um, hopefully that's helpful to people. I love that. I love that. Because I do think we are a country that is very much wrapped up in the terminology that we're used to and terms have meanings and associations. And so to the point that we can sort of change up the way in which we describe a process and even the word that's used, maybe we have the shot, a shot at people re-envisioning what the process could look like. So thank you, Heidi, so much for joining us today on Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Thank you to all of our listeners. And if you are so inclined to do so, please don't forget to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. Appreciate your listening and tuning in. And we look forward to talking to you again on our next episode. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.